Hello, and welcome to Carmelite Conversations. This is Francis Harry, your host. I'd like to present to you a talk, a presentation given by Lynn Beat called Mary in the Life of St. John of the Cross. Tomorrow, December the 14th, is his feast day. So how appropriate it is to be considering John of the Cross and Mary in his life. She will address why John the Cross rarely specifically explicitly mentions Mary and how we know that he spoke fervently about her throughout his writings. She will use as her main source the ICS publication, The Collected Works of St. John of the Cross. It is interesting to consider how Mary drew him to Carmel and then how she kept him in Carmel. And so she will address those uh, points and even more and offer many quotes uh, specifically addressing Mary, which I think are wonderful uh, fodder for meditation. So without further ado, I introduce Lynn B, a member of the Secular Order of Discalced Carmelites in Dayton, Ohio. God bless. My talk is titled, Mary in the Life and Writings of St. John of the Cross. And I didn't choose this topic because I'm an expert on St. John of the Cross. Rather, I chose it because I wanted to learn more about him and his relationship with the Blessed Virgin Mary. I've been in Carmel for about 15 years, and I've read nearly everything that St. John has written, and I've been struck from time to time with the fact that he rarely mentions the Blessed Virgin Mary. But we'll get to that. I want to start by telling you that the resources that I drew from, and I'll assure you that if I say anything profound that it came from one of these sources. So first, I took all the passages from John's writings and some biographical information from ICS publications, The Collected Works of St. John of the Cross, which most of you own. There's a, a brother, John Mary of Jesus Crucified OCD, and he is a student of theology from our province, and he wrote a short article called The Mariology of St. John of the Cross. So I drew from that also. In his article, he draws from an earlier essay called Mary, and the Holy Spirit in the writings of John of the Cross. And that's by Father Emmanuel J. Sullivan, OCD. And he's a friar from our province who died about 10 years ago. So what do we know about Mary and the life of St. John of the Cross? Unfortunately, not a lot is known about John's childhood, except that his father died when he was three years old and that John, his mother, and his older brother lived in complete poverty. It is said that John credited Our Lady with saving his life at least twice when he was young. Once when he fell into a lagoon, and another time when he fell into a deep well. We can assume that John eventually stopped falling into things, and we know that he had great compassion for the sick, and he worked as a nurse and an alms collector at a hospital for poor people who had the plague or other contagious diseases. The administrator of the hospital was very impressed with John, and he provided him with an opportunity to receive an education from the Jesuits. And the education he received would be sort of like our college degree. After completing his studies, he was about 20 or 21 years old, and he could have entered the Society of Jesus. 
He was also offered a secure future by the hospital administrator. And that would have been ordination to the priesthood and the post of hospital chaplain. But John rejected both of these paths and he entered the Carmelite novitiate in Medina. We can only guess that he was attracted by Carmel's contemplative spirit and the Marian character of the order. Father Sullivan describes how Carmelites of the time would have viewed Mary. So this is a big quote. Because of Mary's patronage of the order, Carmelites looked upon themselves as belonging totally to her. Likewise, Mary, their patroness and mother, belonged in a very special way to the order of Carmel and to each of its members. In the 14th and 15th centuries, it was Mary, the most pure virgin, who became the focus of Carmel's Marian devotion. What was stressed was not so much Mary's bodily chastity as her purity of heart and total dedication to God. It should also be noted that during the same period, Mary, the most pure virgin, became increasingly known as Mary, the sister of each and every Carmelite. The order had always been known as the brother of Our Lady, no, the brothers of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, but now a deeper consciousness emerged of what that title meant. Mary, our patroness, Mary, our mother, is also our sister. Our very home is her home, and the habit we wear unites us in a most intimate way to her. Carmelites began to appreciate, as never before, that Mary is not just above and beyond us in so many ways, but is also one of us. She is our sister, and as our sister, she is always with us and everywhere. End quote. Father Sullivan further declares that just as Carmel was totally Marian before John's entrance, John was totally Marian before joining Carmel. A few years later, however, John was considering leaving Carmel to join the Cartusians. Fortunately, he met St. Teresa of Jesus at this time, and she convinced him to stay in his own order and join her in the reform of Carmel. It's been suggested that Teresa prevailed on his great love for Mary. So just as Mary brought him to Carmel, she also kept him in Carmel. We're told a lot of stories about um, St. John of the Cross and his love of Mary. During Advent, he would lead the other friars on procession to recall how Mary and Joseph went in search of lodging for the divine infant. Once on seeing an image of Our Lady while he was preaching to the nuns in Caravaca, he couldn't conceal his love for her. And he exclaimed, how happy I would be to live alone in the desert with that image. Now, I think we all know about how John was imprisoned for nine months by the Carmelites in Toledo. In the collected works, um, the biographical sketch says, his accusers locked him first in the monastery prison, but at the end of two months for fear of escape, they moved him to another spot, a room narrow and dark without air or light, except for whatever filtered through a small slit high up in the wall. The room was six feet wide and 10 feet long. There John remained alone without anything but his breviary through the terrible cold winter months and the suffocating heat of summer. Added to all this were the floggings, fasting on bread and water, wearing the same bedraggled clothes month after month without being washed, and the lice. In the midst of this deprivation, John was seeking relief by composing poetry in his mind, leaving to posterity some of the greatest lyric stanzas in Spanish literature, among them a major portion of the spiritual canticle. End quote. 
John was said to have credited the Blessed Virgin Mary with his eventual escape from prison. Clearly from all these examples, and there are many more, the Blessed Virgin Mary was in John's mind and heart throughout his life. But was she in his writings? Believe it or not, in John's four major spiritual works, his 15 poems, his 33 surviving letters, and several other minor works, John mentions Mary explicitly only a dozen times. Why did he write so little about her? To answer that question, I'm going to again quote Father Eugene Sullivan. While the explicit references to Mary are very few, all of John's writings are really centered on Mary. Actually, there is little about Mary that John has left unsaid. His whole spiritual doctrine conveys an implicit Mariology. John's writings are all concerned with the union of the soul with God. In his mind, the prime exemplar and perfect model of the soul united in union of love with God is Mary, the mother of Jesus. All that John teaches about that union finds its focus, not just in doctrines and principles, but in the very person of the Virgin Mary. For him, Mary is the living embodiment of all that he has come to know and experience about union with God. While prayer and devotion to Mary are two distinctive characteristics of Carmelite life, in John's case, these two characteristics merge into one. For him, Carmelite life is not a life of prayer and devotion to Mary, but rather a prolongation, a continuation of Mary's own life of prayer. The goal of Carmelite life and the goal of every Christian life is that very same union with God that John sees so clearly present in the life of Mary." End quote. You would think that with so few direct references to Mary in the writings of St. John of the Cross that I'd have time to discuss them all, but sadly in 15 minutes I do not. So I will choose a few that teach us important lessons about Mary and the spiritual life. In the ascent of, Mary, uh, in the ascent of Mount Carmel, we find perhaps the principal Marian text of St. John of the Cross. He's discussing the purification of the memory and its union with God, and I quote, God alone moves these souls who have reached habitual union with God toward those works that are in harmony with his will and ordinance, and they cannot be moved toward others. Thus the works and prayers of these souls always produce their effect. Such were the prayer and the works of Our Lady, the most glorious virgin raised from the very beginning to this high estate. She never had the form of any creature impressed in her soul, nor was she moved by any, for she was always moved by the Holy Spirit. And that's in the Ascent of Mount Carmel, Book 3, Chapter 2, Paragraph 10. So this shows plainly that from the beginning, Mary was in communion with God in cooperation with the inspirations of the Holy Spirit. She's the perfect example of souls, so entirely identified with the will of God that all their acts, works, petitions are inspired by God. John also shows us as Mary, the model, the perfect model of intercession. In his commentary on stanza two of the spiritual canical, John writes, the discreet lover does not care to ask for what she lacks and desires, but only indicates the need. So the beloved may do what he pleases. When the blessed Virgin spoke to her beloved son, at the wedding feast of Cana in Galilee, she did not ask directly for the wine, but merely remarked, 
they have no wine. So John goes on to tell us why it's better to show our need to the Lord than tell him the solution. And he gives three reasons. First, the Lord knows what is suitable for us better than we do. Second, he has more compassion when he beholds the need and the resignation of the soul that loves him. And third, the soul is better safeguarded against self-love and possessiveness by indicating its lack rather than asking for what in its opinion is wanting. So Mary is therefore presented to us as the perfect model of the prayer of petition. So another reference to Mary comes in John's sayings of light and love. And these are excerpts from number 27 and 28. John says, you will not take from me, my God, what you once gave me in your only son, Jesus Christ, in whom you gave me all I desire. Mine are the heavens and mine is the earth. Mine are the nations, the just are mine, and mine the sinners. The angels are mine, and the mother of God, and all things are mine, and God himself is mine, and for me, because Christ is mine, and all for me. Again, quoting Father Sullivan, he says, I find this reference to Mary in a certain sense, even more significant than all the others. Here, John isn't just recounting wonderful things about Mary, but he's telling us that she is ours, with us and for us, always and everywhere. He's telling us that we must realize and appreciate that Mary belongs totally and completely to each of us. Our guide on the road to union with God is no distant stranger, but our very own blessed mother." End quote. Perhaps my favorite references to Mary come from the romances. And those are nine short poems written by John during his imprisonment. They're John's reflections on the prologue of the Gospel of John, which we all know. In the beginning was the word. Our salvation history is shown as a beautiful love story, starting with the love within the Trinity, then overflowing into creation, and finally climaxing in the incarnation and birth of Jesus. So here's an excerpt from the eighth romance. Then he called the angel Gabriel and sent him to the Virgin Mary, at whose consent the mystery was wrought, in whom the Trinity clothed the word with flesh. And though three work this, it is wrought in the one. And the word lived incarnate in the womb of Mary. And he who had only a father now had a mother too. Brother John Mary of Jesus Crucified comments on this. Interestingly, in this passage, God did not send the angel Gabriel for the sake of delivering a message to Mary the message that she would conceive and bear a son. The purpose of Gabriel is not to deliver a message to Mary, but to receive a message from her, the message of her consent. An angelic message is not necessary to communicate God's plan to Mary, who is always attuned to God's will through prayer. Instead, Gabriel serves as a means by which to receive the response of Mary. To quote John, at whose consent the mystery was wrought. John's words suggest that it was not simply that Mary's consent was required for the sake of the incarnation to happen, like a sort of permission allowing God to act. Rather, it was her consent 
which was the very cause of the incarnation. The mystery is wrought at her consent. Mary's consent is an essential piece of the unfolding mystery and the very means by which the incarnation transpires." End quote. I find that um, I could think about what he wrote there and what the romances say there. Um, that's a really good one to reflect on. And I'll conclude my talk because I'm running out of time with one final reference to Mary. And this is John's Christmas refrain, which was probably part of a longer hymn composed for the friars to sing during Advent. It's a beautiful passage for us to ponder this Advent season. The Virgin, weighed with the word of God, comes down the road. If only you'll shelter her. Thank you. <laughs>